0: Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. This is Paul Bass inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, today we're going to look behind a book. The title of a book that's making America tick is called J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. New Haven's own Beverly Gage wrote the book and it's terrific. It's us give a whole new perspective about what's happened in, happened in our country for 70 years in the 1900s and how we got to the place we're at today. Beverly Gage, thanks so much for coming into The Independent.
1: It's great to be here, Paul.
0: I'm going to ask if you can move your bike a little closer to you, just so you're almost touching it. I just want to tell you, everyone's just think this book is just getting raves everywhere, as well it should. I loved it. I loved every page. Um, this is what Brian Burrow, is that his name?
1: Brian Burrow, yeah. Without
0: the S at the end. I always think he's Burrow's. He writes good books, too.
1: He does. He Some re- of them are about the FBI. <laughs> yes,
0: and he reviewed Beverly's book in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. and said, Ms. Gage... You're still, you're still courtesy titles in some publications. Apparently. yeah. <laughs> Ms. Gaze sweeps the myths and half-truths of Hoover's life as a museum cur- curator might a cobwebbed antique. That's a good metaphor. Revealing not the boogeyman of left-wing fantasy, but something no less fascinating. A closeted gay man who emerged as probably the most powerful civil servant in U.S. history. This is a nuanced portrait in a league with the best of Ron Chernow and David McCullough. So Beverly Gaze, what does it feel like to have all the smart people in the country say you just wrote this amazing book.
1: Well, it feels pretty good. <laughs> but it feels good not only because, obviously, I'm, I'm glad that people like the book. But I worked on this for more than a decade. And there were a lot of moments in that process where I did kind of wonder if the world had a place for this kind of, as, as you saw, Paul, long, big, serious, I hope well-written but um, big, fat work of scholarship that takes a long time to research and a long time to write and a long time to read. And uh, I would
0: argue the saving grace was that you had such original perspective on this material. So much of it was new. It's so important to our lives. And you, you were a journalist. You started out in New Haven Advocate, the old well, weekly where you and I worked. And I think you became a historian. You never lost the touch to write clearly and interestingly. So I think that's what the saving grace of that book was.
1: Well, you know, (laughs) it wasn't homework. You're the person who taught me to do that.
0: So (laughs) thank you. Thank you very much, Beverly. So Beverly, when people I haven't seen anything but but incredible praise for this book as is well deserved. But what's interesting about it is you're asking people to accept a new premise about J. Edgar Hoover, who ran the FBI, created the modern FBI and ran it for what, 60 something years, right?
1: Yeah, well, he was there at the head of the FBI for 48 years, and then he was in the Justice Department another seven years before that.
0: So let me see if, tell me if this is an accurate way of describing your premise. You're saying, you're telling us that this matters on two levels. One level it matters, just J. Edgar Hoover is a freaking incredibly interesting and important guy. He built the FBI, he spied on everybody, he dealt with every important historical moment from the early 1900s, 1972, from the Cold War, World Wars One and Two crackdown on dissent, civil rights, all that. He created modern law enforcement, the modern surveillance state, and perhaps I'm going to push a little bit on this one, the modern new right, and that's our story. But you're also saying it's our story. It's not just yeager whose story. It's our story, which is a big claim. You did convince me of it, but it's a big claim. You're saying it's partly the story of our nation's 20th century, World War I, Palmer raised World War II, the Red Scare, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Civil Rights Enforcement's aftermath, And also our individual stories, like see ourselves in how can society produce a Jager Hoover. Is that a fair way to put the premise?
1: That's absolutely it. So one of the things that I wanted to do was not only to write a biography of this interesting person, who, as you say, is really pretty interesting in his own right, but uh, to use it as a way of thinking about some bigger political story. And, you know, I think that entailed getting away from this stereotype or really caricature that we have of Hoover, which is that uh, the things that he did, he did by strong arming other people, sort of sitting alone in some dark room with his files, making or everyone else like do Or telling, like,
0: John kidding, i going to tell everybody who he had affairs with. Right. When in fact, Hoover had deeper secrets, so it was kind of a tie.
1: Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so he had plenty of secrets, um, but, you know, the other thing that he really had was a lot of support. Um, in Washington, in the country at large, and so that, in many ways, I think is the most surprising thing. Because after his death, you know, people kind of wrote him off as all the abuses and excesses started to come out, and said, you know, oh, he did those terrible things. It had nothing to do with the rest of us. Whereas the actual story is that, that he was incredibly popular. He had really wide the most support.
0: popular trusted man in America, right. He topped the polls. He beat your priest. He beat your president. He beat everybody. And through some of his own finagling, he got TV shows lionizing him and his agency and the whole idea of the FBI.
1: Yeah, he was uh, there for a long time as the most popular guy. So you talked about
0: how it wasn't by bullying people as much as building a state that our society wanted, an idea I want to get back to. But also, isn't there also a story here you meticulously go step by step how when every president came in, whether it was a Republican or a Democrat, an agenda to stop what he's doing, doing is doing, he found a way to work the bureaucracy, how to make himself useful, how to get the new boss to need him, whether the LBJ finding out LBJ just loved it when it turned out he could just spy on everybody. That was my really interesting part. But also FDR wanting to have like the FBI become a federal way to stop the bank robbers and, and people's worries about crime. And that it was sort of like, so often in politics, it seems like, and in government, the truth is so much more interesting than the conspiracy, that you just show the memos. You read these memos he wrote when he didn't want to slow walk a policy they didn't want, or if he was fighting with the CIA and trying to, when they screw up something, let the president know so he could back in power. It was sort of like how bureaucrats work, right? He was a perfect
1: bureaucrat. I mean, that was really where his power came from. So building the FBI kind of in his own vision, Uh, And really with an iron hand, there were very, very few mechanisms of accountability on the FBI when he was there, partly by chance and partly by design. Uh, And then, yeah, he made himself useful to eight different presidents. So he was appointed. He became head of the FBI in 1924 under Calvin Coolidge. He stayed there until 1972 under Richard Nixon. So that meant he was there for Coolidge. Herbert Hoover, who was not related to him, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and Richard Nixon. And four of them are Republicans, four of them are Democrats, and you don't survive in office for that long in that way without kind of knowing how to work the politics as well as how to run your own bureaucracy.
0: I mean, I think a mark of a successful book is where we can see ourselves in the story, both relating to the character. We understand, you know, he wanted to keep his private life out of the picture and all that kind of stuff. But also how we could put ourselves would we have helped enable the rise of a Hoover. So it's easy for us, as you say, after he died, everyone put up their hands and said, he ran Collin Tel Pro, this counter-talented program where the poli- with the FBI were the biggest criminals in American democracy. They were were creating fake stories about people to try to stop them from being able to protest the government or in some cases die. And and all and what you find out reading Beverly Gage's terrific new book on her and, Jagger Hoover is that the liberals, as much as anybody, empowered him. He had very conservative views, very racist views, very right wing views, but he was just as much enabled by FDR and the liberals all the way through, he had, including Thurgood Marshall at the NAACP, and that's what resonated with me when I read the book because I think I would have enabled the Jagger Hoover too, it. made me think about. When I cover cops and FBI people, my interactions with directors of the FBI here, police officers, and A, when you're a reporter and reporters definitely enabled Hoover, you get kind of excited when you have access to inside information. You you identify with the people you cover and you kind of see the barriers they're working against and you also believe the hype. And so I guess I had no doubt after reading your book that I'd be another one of those liberals who like touted what Hoover did, even though in history you'd think you won it. You think you would have been?
1: Well, I think in doing the research I found myself kind of struggling with all of these moments where I found myself pretty sympathetic to what he was doing and particularly sympathetic to the sorts of things that he was trying to project. I mean, the sort of political puzzle of the book is that he's this ideological conservative in lots of ways that probably aren't uh, super surprising to people today. He was racist. He was a, an avowed anti-communist. And I really
0: disagree with the point in the Wall Street Journal. He said you overplayed the idea that he belonged to this fraternity Kappa alpha, which was about birth of a nation. It was about celebrating the Confederacy and, and Jim Crow. But in fact, that was so central because, as you point out, he got involved in college and he his whole life he was an active member through near his death when he got awarded and that was pretty interesting. <laughs>
1: oh yeah, the Kappa Alpha material <laughs> yeah. I found really interesting. They're still around, by the way. I don't know if they have a chapter at George Washington University, which was his alma mater, but they are yeah. uh, they're still around as an institution. But in any case, yeah, so he has all these conservative values, but he also makes a big case for himself as a kind of icon of professionalism and of government expertise, and that the FBI men are going to be these sort of um, expert, perfect investigators. And that had a lot of appeal to a lot of liberals from, you know, Franklin Roosevelt on up. Uh, And the other thing that I think is really important to think about, you know, would, would you in that moment have supported and enabled him um, is that a lot of his power came in moments of emergency when people were really scared. So, And you
0: always turn for that security, especially people in office, whether it's a, or a reporter, too. You always look for the person who kind of feels confident that can know a situation, handle a situation.
1: Exactly. And that's what he did. You know, in the 30s, there's a lot of concern about violent crime, people like John Dillinger, right? bank robbery and kidnapping. And Hoover says, you know, I have the answers. We can do this. Uh, same thing happens with domestic intelligence in the Second World War. Uh, and then again, when the cold war comes along he says you know i understand the communists i can crush them and i'm going to do it in a way that is more responsible than someone like joe mccarthy um and so lots of liberals loved him supported him the aclu backed him sometimes which is kind of amazing to think about
0: well because for his own political survival even though he had he kind of directed the palmer raids palmer was blamed for it and he wanted to show that he was different i mean that's the great nuances in your book and the book is J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. Beverly Gage, a professor of history at Yale, wrote it. It's amazing. Viking Press. I recommend it to everybody. The um, and I think you left out just now the part that not just if we were liberals or lefties then, and making excuses for him. When you read your book, you find out that despite his hardcore racism, conservatism, he genuinely worked to stop lynching when he could, or to stop even. Even though he believed in segregation, he used the FBI, according to your book, Beverly, if I have it right, to try to stop white citizens' councils and the Klan, which he, his chapter, Cap Alpha, celebrated, he stopped them from committing violence. I mean, and he did seem to believe, it seemed like you concluded, Beverly, am I correct, that he wasn't just doing it because he believed in rules, which was important, and he believed in law, but that he also believed in prof- that professionalism, that he believed that even though he had these views, he had to stop people with similar views from lynching and killing people. Am I right about
1: that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's a
0: feather in his cap.
1: Right. These were a couple of the moments that surprised me the most and where I found myself sort of cheering him on uh, was this campaign to investigate lynchings in the 1940s at a moment when it was actually pretty hard to do that because Congress kept refusing to pass an anti-lynching law. Um, So getting federal jurisdiction to go in and do these big investigations was pretty difficult. And then again, in the 60s, he really goes after uh, the Klan, after neo-Nazi groups, white supremacist groups. And all of those cases, they seem to have a couple of things in common. One, as you said, was violence. Um, two was defiance of federal authority, right? So, a lot of the white South, whether it's lynching uh, or Klan activity, you know, we're doing it and saying, "Ha ha, federal government, you can't come get us." And nothing was going to make J. Edgar Hoover matter um, than that kind of overt defiance of actually, not only law and order but federal power in particular.
0: I think if you lived then, you actually would have been critical of Hoover, and I wouldn't have been. Because when you and I worked in New Haven Advocate, I remember I had gotten access to some information about drug raids and stuff, and I thought that was so fun and wrote it. And you were a young person there, but you said, Why, isn't our role to question the drug war <laughs> rather than like celebrate the arrest? But here's the way I think we might have played an opposite role before reading Beverly Gage's book if we lived back then, which is that we probably would have been upset about the execution of the Rosenbergs as being spies and the whole allegations about the Communist Party, the allegations against Alger Hiss and Whitaker Chambers, and you're not the first person to write this, but I think most definitively here with some of the recent material you got, it seems pretty clear that Hoover was right about Alger Hiss, about the role of the American Communist Party in um in infiltrating organizations here and working directly with Moscow, but he couldn't tell people because he didn't want to reveal the information he was getting through the Venona cables, that he, he would blow too much of his investigations if he went to court cases. Do you think that's true that maybe we would have been harder on then and less hard when we look at it now?
1: That seems really possible. And, the you know, you said... This is not only a book about Hoover and the country, but about kind of individual lives. And how
0: we do it now with right. the rise of surveillance state now that he created, how much are we enabling today? When we, and we, we do want the FBI to go after white supremacist groups now, right? And January 6th people, although I'm very concerned when they create the situations that tell people to get infiltrated, try to get them to commit uh, um, a violent act and then arrest them for something they were never going to do.
1: Yeah, one of the really interesting things that's happening that's now right, that is right in your in your theme and I wrote an essay about this for the for the New York Times a couple of weeks ago is that for the first time really since Hoover's death if you take opinion polls, Democrats and liberals yeah, like the, the FBI, FBI better than Republicans and conservatives and a lot of that just has to do with the Trump Investigations, um, but I think there is also this sense uh as right wing violence emerges, etc., that you've got all of these uh, Democrats and liberals sort of urging pretty draconian action, we, urging infiltration. Yeah. All of
0: this because um, the violence is coming from the right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that, but then, then, and this is what's so nuanced about your book. And Burrow touched on this in his Wall Street Journal review. So on the one hand, we say, "Hey, this racist guy went after listings great. Hey, this guy actually has some goods on the communists, but." Especially with the rise of Contel Pro, as you detail in such chilling ways, if they became a rogue criminal organization, the way they went after dissent. So they went after Martin Luther King and so he'd almost kill himself. They they created documents, falsifications, so that Black Panthers would try to kill each other based on false information. That's pretty heavy stuff. And he you know, he was incredible racist about Martin Luther King, and I don't want to repeat the words here. So how do we put that together? The way Burroughs did is he said age. Mm -hmm. He said Hoover got too old and he kind of lost it. There were no more protections on him. So in his last 15 years, he just went crazy. And it was Nixon, one of his closest friends, I learned this from reading your book, who actually wanted him out but felt he couldn't get him out. So thank God he died. That was like cynical Nixon at his best. But do you agree with Burroughs is that COINTELPRO was sort of a, maybe a logical extension of where he had begun when there are no more guardrails on it and where he just got a little dotty being old or is he wrong about that?
1: I think there's some truth to the to the being old in the sense that um, Hoover had somewhat less control over the organization as he got older. Um, And he was a little more paranoid uh, and was, I think, angry that the world was changing in these ways that he didn't like. And he saw himself as this force to contain it. But I also think that COINTELPRO is interesting because it's a great example of kind of how secrecy and these kinds of illegal extra legal or at least very secret programs emerge which is that he had a pretty good sense of what the country was going to tolerate and not Mm. tolerate and when he wanted to do something and he didn't feel like he had other means available to do it that's when the secrecy usually came in that's when uh he would come up with some sort of relatively rogue program like cointelpro although i did find uh, in a new set of uh, documents that, that there is evidence that he did tell the Eisenhower administration, yes, the Johnson that. administration, like we have these disruptive counterintelligence programs, and everyone just said, fine. I mean, they yeah. didn't know the details, of course, but uh, they didn't object either. Hmm.
0: So Beverly Gage, how did you start getting on the story that led you to spend a decade writing this incredible book of Jaeger Hoover did you start out saying I'm writing a biography of Hoover or how did it happen
1: yeah it was on my mind for uh for a few years even before I started actively working on it because I uh kind of ran into Hoover as a historical character when I was writing my last book which was a story about um a bomb attack on Wall Street in 1920 thank you uh and He was there as this very young man. He was 25 years old at the time. But he was already there kind of looking into this investigation, learning how to do surveillance, learning how to fight communism, all of these things that he was going to carry on. And so that got me interested because I could see him learning and those ideas were going to become so influential. And then also it led me into kind of reading the other biographies of him. Uh, most of which had come out in the in the 80s and 90s. And it seemed like there was just a lot of new material and new ways of thinking about him and his life. Uh, and nobody was was in the midst of, of writing a big new biography. Now I know why that is. <laughs>
0: it's because it
1: takes forever. But uh, yeah, that's what drew me in.
0: And did it begin as a biography of Hoover? Did you pretty much stick with what you was going to do 10 years ago? Because a lot of times books take a pivot.
1: Yeah, it did begin as a biography. It actually began with uh, these four main sections which are still the four main sections of the book i mean along the way i found all sorts of moments and incidents and- was there a
0: pivotal moment when you say wow this is shaping up to be a different person a different project than they thought or like this is going to be your robert carrow's robert moses or lbj like uh, was there a moment you said, "Oh my God, I'm all in"? Oh my God, this blew my mind. I didn't expect this.
1: Yeah, I had a lot of those moments. And, you know, like like Robert Carroll. I'm glad that I was stopped from doing this. You know, there were moments where I went to my editor and said, "This clearly has to be multiple volumes." And she said, "Do not do that because this could go on for your whole life, and you don't mm-hmm. want that. And also, nobody wants to read uh, only the first half. Um, so we have one that was big a good volume. Call. Yeah, I think so."
0: You know, four hundred something pages—it's a lot, but it's also not a lot, especially when it's written by someone who's done journalism. I mean, you can read it.
1: (laughs) It's supposed to be a real story, right? And uh, I—I was very insistent. Maybe this comes from journalism too, on having a photograph and a caption at the beginning of every chapter, making the chapters short, so yeah, uh, so people. And you you
0: always cliffhanger something was leading into the next (laughs) chapter, right? So, um, how did you combine? Your experience as a journalist and experience as a historian. For instance, were there many in-person interviews in this?
1: So I did not do interviews for this, uh, in part because Hoover died in 1972. So the number of people and who other were key players. alive, who knew him well, were pretty small, and he didn't have a family. And so it's not like there's generational well, I wonder if that succession. made it
0: better, because you have such a clear eye on this stuff, you know? And when you interview people, you get so compromised sometimes.
1: Right, uh, that was part of it. And then I also think that with a figure like this, even people who knew him this far out, they kind of mostly repeat the legend rather than. And you the know, amount offer of written material insight.
0: is not available because you yeah, had the benefit of time. Stuff's been declassified, right?
1: Yeah, there's a, an endless supply. But I tried to really hone in on, on the records that were new, that were important, that had been seen And tell me about that. What
0: before. was new? What hadn't been seen before?
1: Well, there are a bunch of records uh, that came out after the end of the Cold War. So some of the... The Venona
0: files that they... Claire, the guy at uh, Yale, had written about that. I read those books.
1: Right, exactly. So there was Venona. There was this other project called Solo. uh, Mm -hmm. There were a couple of infiltrators and and informers in the party. Um, And then the most recent big uh, kind of public document dump was that uh, under the JFK Assassinations Act, uh, Um. the records of the church committee were finally released and that those was, were
0: never released before the church
1: committee they were not i mean we had the reports well and, and he had the hearings the public, right. i mean
0: i've read the church hearings exactly and frank church was the senator who when cointelpro was was um revealed i guess in the 70s uh, that he then held hearings revealing that stuff so what was in the records that wasn't exposed at the time
1: so what we've had were the church committee's reports the hearings and then you know some of the witness testimony but what was uh, made public a couple of years ago are all of the research documents that they gathered uh that their report was based on so for instance uh you know they wrote a lot about the fbi's campaign against martin luther king um and the documents that have been released now um just have a lot more detail give me an
0: example something was in one of them
1: uh, so there's some stuff about King's sex life, uh, but that, that was is, known, right? Well, it was known, but there's a lot of new detail in here. Uh, and, and that's going to be, and more that's going to be
0: unredacted for years. You said, yeah,
1: exactly. Um, there were, this is how I saw the documents that showed that in fact, uh, Hoover had told people about COINTELPRO, um, that's in mm. this, in this collection. Uh, and then I filed a lot of FOIA requests. And what did myself. you get? Uh, I filed mostly for two categories. One was right-wing organizations because I thought we knew so much about the FBI on the left and we didn't know very much mm. about the FBI on the right. Um, and then just key uh, key officials kind of in Hoover's orbit. And what orbit. did you
0: find on right-wing that hadn't been known before?
1: Well, I guess there are there were two things. Um, one was uh, that Hoover himself had a kind of ambivalent relationship with uh, right-wing organizations that loved him. So the far mm. right, particularly in the 60s, thought he was this great hero, which was kind of funny because they generally hated government bureaucrats, but he was always the big exception. Mm-hmm. Um, but Hoover was often a little more skeptical of them than they were of him. He's like thought the John Birch Society was pretty nutty. Um, <laughs> and then sometimes he did You know, investigations of organizations on the right in the way that he did on the left. So the citizens councils Mm -hmm. uh, in the south in the in the 50s, um, he you know, there are interesting memos where he says, well, I really want to know what's going on with them. We have to keep track of them. But we also have to acknowledge uh, we got to keep this super quiet. People are going to freak out. Uh, they're not necessarily doing anything illegal, and this might be an infringement of their civil liberties.
0: (laughs) You know what I love, Beverly, too? And this is great stuff. Also, and there's so much material that did exist, like the church committee, COINTELPRO papers. It takes an historian like you to weed through them to see what's important. Often the most interesting stuff was out there in view, but view meant 25,000 pages of stuff. Was there anything you found that had been there before that no one noticed before?
1: Well, the news coverage was really interesting yeah. to me because Hoover kept these scrapbooks. You know, he was very concerned about his public image. He was very sensitive to criticism, and he had this big PR apparatus. And so, partly as a as a result of that, there are just these boxes and boxes and boxes of press clippings. Where in, did you see uh, those? They're all at the National Archives. Um, and so uh, that was all obviously public material, but you have to read it kind of slowly and carefully to find these So you were sitting quotes. there in the
0: building with boxes?
1: Uh, I was sitting there in the building with boxes. That's yeah. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a whole lot of what I did here.
0: Beverly Gage, the um, she did what the FBI did to the rest of the country, finding out about J. Edgar Hoover, and what he really did is he built up the uh, FBI and his new, her new book, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Making the American Century. You listen to that on WNHH's Dateline, New Haven. I want a 103.5 FM live stream, org, And obviously you said you didn't want to write a 20,000 page book, which you could have because you felt no one would read it. And I was obviously interested in how you made choices of what to leave out. And obviously everybody has their own um, stuff that they're interested in. So I've always been most interested in Robert F. Williams, who was sort of like before Malcolm X, the person who was seen as the anti Martin Luther King and who actually was written out of history. He was... So probably the second most important civil rights leader, I'd say, in the early 60s, late 50s. Led the Monroe, North Carolina, NAACP. Had a best-selling book, Negroes with Guns. A debate uh, king. And it would seem to me the kind of person who would freak out J. Edgar Hoover most. He was on the most wanted list that Hoover had. And he outsmarted Hoover maybe better than anyone in history. So Hoover wanted him caught, maybe dead. He slipped out of the country when they were framing him. And he made it to with the help of the Socialist Workers Party, who was being spied on by Hoover. He makes it to Canada, goes into a bathroom fidel castro sends someone in a little plane they go into the bathroom williams comes out and goes in the plane and then he sticks his finger in hoover's eye for years he um broadcasts radio free dixie through half of america from cuba a jazz and politics show and then this is the part that really gets me and i really wonder what hoover thought so then williams becomes disenchanted in cuba for being racist goes to china becomes friends with Mao Zedong, which was a very close society then Sees it firsthand, and Richard Nixon, as president, decides he wants to have detente with China. And the only person who really knows what's going on in China is Robert F. Williams. So he arranges to bring him back, drop the charges. All of Hoover's base is so mad at the country and the FBI for letting Williams to fly back. And he gets his charges dropped, and he hangs out with the president. What did Hoover think about all that?
1: Yeah, well I think you've given a great uh, great description. I mean, Hoover was uh, you know, enraged uh by Robert F. Williams uh early on. And I actually don't know as much about his views about the whole thing, uh, by the time we get to the to well, the Well here he had demonized the King
0: and then he was like the devil's answer to the king for someone right. like Hoover because he's right. saying, Don't go shoot people but be armed and ready right. don't don't turn the other cheek and he had such a following
1: right and he embodied i would say three things that hoover really uh despised so first of all he was black and it's clear that over Hoover's career, the people who bore the brunt of not only surveillance, but disruption and harassment um, in the most serious ways were usually black activists. Um, two, he was a radical, right? And so he was sort of in uh, not only the general left, but the pretty far left serious uh, Socialist communist orbit, right? Is talking with people like Fidel Castro, was ending up in Cuba for a while. Um, so that's piece two. And then piece three is that Hoover would have seen him as a vigilante, right? And one of the uh, though that's not really what Williams was arguing, but one of the things that Hoover uh, was often the most concerned about, sometimes from the right, often from the left, was uh, the use of violence that was not government violence. And so all three of those things, I mean- Plus this is, he was
0: funny. The guy's a great writer and he's <laughs> right, he, he was funny. Right. He was charismatic. He was
1: effective. All of that stuff.
0: So what did Hoover think when when the right did not want Williams brought back to America and Hoover- FBI arranged the flights. What did Hoover think about that?
1: You know, I don't know. I actually didn't I didn't look at those files. I wonder if that's another case where
0: where Hoover, even though he'd gone kinda batty by then, I wonder if Hoover did carry out his bureaucratic mission for something he hated.
1: Well, he often did that. I mean, particularly for Johnson and for Nixon. Um, You know, by the time we get to the Nixon years, he and Nixon are sometimes in conflict with each other. Um, But in a lot of cases, he viewed himself as, you know, a servant of the And in his
0: last years before he died, his closest friend probably in Congress was Nixon. Nixon's now the president, right? They vacationed together. Nixon was seeking to undo one of the largest enterprises of Hoover's life. He was wanting detente with the communists in both the Soviet Union and China. He and Kissinger were laying the grout work and then carried it out. What did Hoover think about all that? Did he try to undercut it?
1: Well, Hoover was never uh, super interested in foreign relations per se. I mean, he was very interested in the struggle against communism, but he really understood his bailiwick to be domestic communism. So, did he
0: not get in? Like, the way he fought with Bobby Kennedy was AG over certain policies. Did he not have bureaucratic fights with Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State, over warming relations with?
1: You know, I I didn't see much evidence of that. That's so interesting. Um, Yeah, because he didn't tend to weigh in on kind of foreign relations matters. So he did have conflicts with Kissinger. You know, Kissinger came to him in 1969 and asked the FBI to put wiretaps on members of the White House staff, national security staff, and several members of the press, which Hoover did at his behest as they were trying to figure out these leaks of of war information in particular. And then even then, Hoover uh, suggested pretty quickly that this wasn't a very good idea and that if it was found out that you were actually wiretapping members of the press, there might be a big backlash. So another case in
0: your book was so fascinating where Hoover was the voice of reason.
1: Exactly. Behind
0: the scenes. And the other, I'll take, I I was running back, and it wasn't important enough, obviously, to be in your book, was New Haven's COINTELPRO pro moment when Alex Rackley, the Black Panther, was falsely accused of being an informer It was taken to a basement in New Haven in a chapter where half the people were informers, but he wasn't. They tortured him three days, lying in his bed in his own waist, pots of boiling water over his head, and they shot and killed him. And then we had a big national trial about that. Where was Hoover on all that?
1: So Hoover was really interested in the New Haven story. Um, and in fact, uh, he gets into some conflict with his, a couple of his most important officials because uh, they, he felt, weren't paying enough attention to New Haven. New Haven was going to be where it was at um, in, in the moment of the Bobby Seal trial um, and the other thing that's really interesting to me about that story, which you've written about so, uh, so effectively and movingly, um, is this, uh, it's a great example of what even the suspicion, as well as the reality of informants and does. And that's why the
0: FBI did that. They would right. write memos saying so-and-so so is informants. So that's what I wanted to ask you about. I actually really respect how you thought about this stuff deeply, much more deeply than I'm capable of thinking about it, to be honest. And I had this one fight about one COINTELPRO memo. So in San Francisco, there was a discussion under William Sullivan and the Pro about whether to write a memo accusing one panther of being a government informant to another one. And they wrote, don't do that because of what happened in New Haven. Mm-hmm. So to me, given that there are so many examples in New Haven of them writing false letters about other panthers, but Rackley wasn't from New Haven, so we don't have any documents that say the person we had in there leading the interrogation was our guy, which a lot of people think was true. So the question was, and David Horowitz wrote a piece attacking me for saying that that memo showed that the FBI might very well have planted the idea that this guy was informant. Which you're right; in the end, doesn't really matter. They did about so many people; they just made him crazy and paranoid. I was coming off a case in New York where half the people were accused of this, and there was death. But he said that actually shows they had restraint, which kind of gets to the other theme of your book, that they said, look, this got out of hand in New Haven, let's not do it anymore. But look at Chicago. So they did keep doing it. So what? Where do? You, how do you read that memo, Beverly?
1: Yeah, well, I think they weren't always consistent on these questions. And one of the things that was really fascinating to me in looking at their internal conversations about things like COINTELPRO, informers, infiltration, um, is... Uh, First of all, that they made different decisions in different situations, different field offices. You know, Hoover himself wasn't always super consistent. Um, But also was how smart they generally were about the things that were going to disrupt social movements. Right. And some of the most interesting memos to me were the ones where they said, hey, let's go ahead and do this. Let's try to, you know, sow a division between this leader and that leader. And while the FBI is thinking about this and contemplating whether or not to do it, it happens anyway. (laughs) Right, because a lot of what they're doing is trying to kind of enhance things that are otherwise happening. And when you look at their Panther memos, right, at a certain point, they say, OK, actually, we've done enough because mm. this is self-perpetuating now. Right. They're taking it The factionalism, the violence, the mutual suspicion. you ever see the, the one with the glossary suspicion. in New Haven
0: where they actually showed what phrases to write to sound black? Like, oh, my yeah, man, dig yeah, the threads yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, well, deep.
1: looking at their attempts to imitate either yeah. student activists or black activists during this period are, are quite stunning. <laughs> some of my favorite stuff was that they they apparently had a cartoonist uh, on staff at the FBI to do cartoons making fun of the Panthers and of student activists. Wow. And so in all those COINTEL profiles, you, said, you can see these fake cartoons that ended up in the press. But there was some guy at the FBI. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there, was Emory Douglas making cartoons. So, uh, one other theory I want to write by you again, because again, when it, you know we we're talking about the great new information you found, but also your just ability to look at the endless amount of material that's not out there and, and help us understand it, which I think is a role of a historian. I had a theory after reading all this that I've had for a while that if you look at the fight between this, the Communist Party and the and the federal government, the FBI, and then the Black Panthers, the kind of drag out where where J Edgar Hoover said the. Black Panthers are the single greatest threat to the domestic security of the United States. My theory was that only about four people believed that, but they happened to be J. Edgar Hoover and Sullivan on the FBI side and Bobby Seale and a couple of Eldridge Cleaver on the Panther side. <laughs> right. And that, in fact, the Panthers right. never were, had any danger to overthrow the U.S. There wasn't going to be armed revolution. But because the FBI believed that, it heightened the tension so much and led to so much deadly and corrosive act, behavior. And that the, uh, there was much more of a, a Cold War going on with nuclear weapons in the Soviet Union. But even then, the CPUSA, Communist Party USA, might not have been as big a threat, even though Hoover had, did have some real information in that case of the things they did wrong. It really wasn't going to take over America and the land of Damien Runyon. But that because he believed it did, and because the communists believe, and, but the Panthers too really believed that they were about to be America's version of the dozens of of liberation struggles in the West and and bring a, a communist revolution. Do you think it's only those two groups really believed it, but because they were in such important roles that changed American history?
1: Yeah, I think that that's basically true. And you're right that it's funny. I mean, particularly with the with the communists from very early on, you know, Hoover is saying there's going to be a revolution. And the communists are saying, that's right, there's going to be a revolution. And everybody else is sort of saying, really, is there going to be a revolution? Um, but I think what Hoover was really key about, and this is true of the Panthers, but especially um, the Communist Party, is that, you know, you can imagine a different FBI head uh, in that moment. Kind of taking a very national security approach, doing espionage investigations, maybe looking at Soviet money coming into the party um, and stopping it there. Whereas Hoover really took the lead in making this, you know, the great existential struggle of his age.
0: If you could have interviewed Hoover, what would you have asked him?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think I would have been a little afraid of him like everyone else.
0: <laughs> really? I'm not afraid of him after reading the book because <laughs> yeah. he's so human.
1: Yeah. Well, he also, uh, it's true that when people came in to uh, to speak with him, he usually just started talking and you couldn't shut him up. And he said what he wanted to say and he didn't say a word more. And then he sent so you was out So is your the door. answer,
0: what you've asked him. I wonder if have had a chance to ask him.
1: Um, um, I just listened. Probably.
0: <laughs> if you could have asked a question.
1: If I could have asked a question. Um. Let's see. I guess I would have asked him about his father, um, which I never got much of a sense of. His father was, was mentally ill. That was your Ill. rose yeah, that he was yeah.
0: affected by the weakness of his father having an yeah. illness, which you got a little bit of psychoanalysis there.
1: A little bit, a little bit.
0: Right. Well, Beverly Gays' got, got job well done. Thanks, We're all Paul. so proud of you in New Haven your fantastic new book, J. Edgar Hoover the Making of the American Century. It's been declared by everyone. Nashley is a fantastic, important book we should all read, and it's true. Thanks for joining us, Beverly. Thanks for Nora filling in for Harry on the controls. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD "A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.